This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to talk about physician-assisted suicide, primarily from the legal and um, medical, ethical, and professional standpoint. I think there are certainly some aspects of this uh, issue that touches on um, uh, theology and spirituality and philosophy, and I hope we'll get to some of those uh, in the discussion. Um, but I want to talk mainly from the standpoint of uh, the practical matter. It's one thing, I think, to talk about this issue in a more abstract perspective, but it's a, it's a, I think you'll you learn as much or more, perhaps, by looking how it's actually being instituted um, in the United States, in certain states, and uh, around the country. And I think it's particularly relevant for us here in Maryland because there's a bill that's been proposed um, and is very, very close in the legislature uh, for several years with just a few votes one way or another determining whether it's going to pass or not. So I think for, for those who live in Maryland, it's important to be uh, aware of this issue from the legal perspective and the legislative perspective. Just trying to advance my slides. So we'll just start with some definitions to be sure we're, we're talking about the same thing. Doctor or physician-assisted suicide is a form of euthanasia or good death, where a physician provides the means, such as a lethal drug prescription in this case, and counseling for a patient to end his or her own life by self-administration. And some of the synonyms or euphemisms for this that you'll see in addition are physician or doctor-assisted death, death with dignity, end-of-life option, which is what it's called in the Maryland legislation, and medical aid in dying, which is an increasingly popular term, particularly used in Canada and increasingly advocated in the United States by proponents. Um, in euthanasia, the distinction is that the drugs are not self-administered. We can talk about this, but you know, from, from my perspective, there's not a great difference between the self-administration and not self-administration, but I think from a legal perspective that, that this, this distinction is drawn um, because self-administration, at least legally to the proponents, proves that the, the volitional act of the patient. Um, traditionally, how this has been done for, for the past 20, 30 years since it's been legalized in the United States is using cecobarbital, um, a powerful controlled substance, sedative ignotics, class two um, <clears throat> controlled substance. 100 milligrams, it's a, a drug that's typically prescribed either for seizure disorder or for help in sleeping. Um, usually one or two tablets is the therapeutic dose, and the um, uh, dose for assisted suicide is to take 90 to 100 uh, capsules, dissolve them in liquid, and swallow quickly. Um, because it can induce vomiting, an antiemetic is usually given beforehand. But as we'll talk about over the past two to three years, uh, because barbiturates have become extremely expensive and less available in the United States, proponents of this practice have turned more to cocktails of sedatives and cardiac drugs, which has largely replaced uh, barbiturates. In terms of some historical background, this is really quite an old practice. In the mid-1800s, increasing medical use of morphine and chloroform for anesthesia in the United States led to proposals to use these drugs to hasten death for patients with advanced illnesses. And one of the first uh, recordings we have of legislation being proposed for euthanasia in 1906 in Ohio, a euthanasia law was proposed but voted down by a decisive margin. In the 1920s and 30s, public support for euthanasia actually increased in the United States along with eugenics uh, and forced sterilizations and other um, practices, although they were never le legally adopted. And of course, then World War II intervened and the, the horrors of what happened in Europe uh, and uh, the Nuremberg trials and that kind of put uh, uh, euthanasia uh, as, a, as a public issue in quiescence for some time. In 1980, Derek Humphrey, a British journalist, founded the Hemlock Society to promote euthanasia and assisted suicide. And it's really this event that put this back into the public consciousness, particularly with his publication in 1992 of Final Exit, which is kind of a, um, a how-to uh, self-guide of um, assisted suicide for the dying. Uh, this society, the Hemlock Society, uh, uh, deteriorated and ultimately was uh, re reborn as a, an organization called Compassion and Choices, which is now the leading proponent of assisted suicide in the United States. 
Another important uh, person from a historical perspective is Jack Kevorkian. Uh, he was a pathologist in Michigan who never really practiced medicine. I think he, for a few months, practiced pathology, but uh, he, he never really treated patients. Uh, but however, in the 1990s, he became um, uh, the leading national advocate for assisted uh, death and um, assisted in the deaths of about 130 patients with advanced illnesses. He, de he devised two machines, one he called a Thanatron, which was an injection machine that a patient would trigger. Uh, he would set up the IV line and so forth, and a patient would, would uh, trigger the delivery of the drugs. And then the, another uh, machine was the Mercitron, which used carbon monoxide inhalation. Um, he was tried several times in the 1990s and acquitted each time, but he was finally committed, uh, uh, convicted of second-degree murder in 1999 for giving a lethal injection when he actually did the pushing of the drugs. And interestingly, from the Maryland perspective, a uh, number of states who never explicitly outlawed assisted suicide passed laws uh, in response to the actions of Dr. Kevorkian, including uh, the state of Maryland, who passed their law outlawing assisted suicide in 1999. As I mentioned, Compassion and Choices is a very large, well-funded organization, national advocacy organization with branches in almost every state. Uh, with a large fundraising effort and budget that um, largely works towards passage of assisted suicide laws in state legislatures, and to some extent promoting the use of assisted suicide in states where it's legalized. Uh, Death with Dignity, Final Exit, Exit International, and Dignitas are other organizations that you may see uh, that are advocacy organizations for this practice. Here's the current status of physician-assisted suicide in the United States. It was first legalized in the state of Oregon by referendum in 1994 and then implemented by legislation in 1997. So they've had it now for 24 years, and they're often pointed to as a model by other states that are, that are looking to legalize. Washington state legalized by referendum in 2008. Montana effectively decriminalized it by a judicial action. They're kind of an exception. Most other states use legislation. Vermont legalized in 2013. California, this was a very seismic event in 2015, uh, passed it in a special session that some have questioned the legality of it, um, but it is stood. And uh, since then, Colorado, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey, and most recently, New Mexico um, legalized. But important to realize is that there is a lot of opposition in the United States, and it's been proposed in 20 other states in the last two years uh, where it has failed. So this act and the, 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 the bills are very similar from state to state, creates a legal process which allows any licensed physician uh, it can be a physician assistant or, new, or nurse practitioner in New Mexico, but generally a physician to prescribe a lethal overdose of a drug or drugs to a state resident, except in New York or Minnesota, where they do not, uh, um, where bills have been proposed that would uh, not restrict it to state residents. But in most places, a state resident who voluntarily submits oral and written request, the patient has to be deemed terminally ill and mentally competent with less than six months to live with or without treatment, and no other qualification is needed. Uh, there have to be repeated requests separated by 15 days. Uh, however, exceptions have now been passed in Oregon, and I believe most recently in California, uh, that allows um, a physician to um, uh, have only two days spacing 48 hours in a patient who is felt not, who, who would not live for two weeks. The request has to be confirmed by a second physician, and the drugs have to be self-administered by the patient in a private setting. So that's the basic principles of the basic uh, tenets of this uh, legislation. So I'd like to go over 10 reasons why I've come up with in my work in this area over the past six years, since it was first introduced in Maryland, um, why I think we should oppose uh, this specific act in physician-assisted suicide in general. I'll just go through these one by one. So first reason is that physician-assisted suicide has always been regarded as unethical for physicians and nurses. The Oath of Hippocrates, uh, 2,400 years ago, specifically states, neither will I administer a deadly drug or a poison to anyone when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. And when I first reread the Hippocratic Oath and found that in there, it was really quite striking that this is very specifically talking about exactly what we're talking about now. So this is not a new idea by any means. Um, uh, uh, some physicians and family members have, have long sought this. 
of physicians and um, our traditionally our 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 our, our physicians uh, medical profession has said no to this uh, for I think very important reasons. In more recent times, the American Medical Association took this up in 1993, I think also in response to Dr. Kovorkian's actions, and uh, decided that physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as healer, would be difficult or impossible to control, and would pose serious societal risks. And that's still in the AMA Code of Ethics. The American College of Physicians, the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, the World Medical Organization, and many other organizations specifically oppose assisted suicide because it's been a core principle of medical ethics. It serves as a red line, which protects the integrity of the medical profession, the trust in the medical profession, and the public. This is just the specific wording of the code in the American Medical Association. Interestingly, um, in response to several states who have assisted suicide, asked the AMA's Council of Ethical and Judicial Affairs to re-look at this statement, uh, I believe around 2016, the, uh, the ethics committee looked at this for two years, solicited testimony from all sides of the debate, and concluded that the uh, existing statement should stand. And after a couple rounds of voting, the AMA House of Delegates overwhelmingly affirmed to keep the current um, statement in its code of ethics. The American College of Physicians also recently reaffirmed its opposition to assisted suicide in September of 2017. And the World Medical Association, essentially the international counterpart of the American Medical Association, uh, has addressed this, this almost every year and uh, has a very strongly worded statement firmly opposed to euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Secondly, um, assisted suicide is not really medical care. There has no basis in medical science or medical tradition, no guidelines, no standard of care, no training in medical school or residency. And in fact, we should really be worried about the idea that this could be taught as a medical practice to students and residents and become the subject for research. I don't think any of us would think of giving patients uh, other means of ending their life like cyanide or carbon monoxide as medical care, and neither should we think of using uh, dangerous controlled drugs for this purpose as medical care. Third point is that assisted suicide is societally dangerous. Um, there's a lot of so-called safeguards in these laws, but if you look at them carefully and think about them, they're really an illusion of safety. Uh, number one is that there's no requirement for formal psychiatric evaluation. Number two, the informed consent that's required is minimal, um, but it's, a, it's about a half-page document. Um, there are no witnesses required to the actual consumption of the drugs. There has to be a witness to the patient signing the form, requesting the medication, but when the patient actually fulfills the prescription and may take the, the, the uh, drugs months or days or weeks or even months later, there's not required by law to be a witness to the consumption. There are no routine audits in any state of, um, of documentation or um, how, making sure that the law is complied with. There's no third-party oversight. Physicians in most states are granted uh, blanket immunity from any, um, uh, from any negligence. And then finally, in most states, particularly Oregon, um, the records are excluded from legal discovery and destroyed every year. We know that patients with it receiving a diagnosis of advanced cancer, heart failure, neurologic illness, are often vulnerable to hopelessness, to despair, and to depression, particularly when they first get a very difficult diagnosis. We know this has been measured in up to 50% of patients with metastatic cancer, and 75% of patients with advanced heart failure have diagnosable depression. And yet, under these laws, less than 5% of patients are referred for psychiatric evaluation prior to getting a prescription. And I think that that number in Oregon is down to something like 1%. It's become exceedingly rare uh, for a patient ever to be referred for psychiatric evaluation to make sure they're not suffering from depression. No witnesses required. In Oregon, um, only 10% of deaths are attended by the prescribing physician. Another 10% are attended by another healthcare provider. And that means that 80% are not attended by any healthcare professional. So that we can really have no assurance that the patient was mentally competent and free from undue influence, no assurance that the deadly drugs were self-administered, no assurance that deaths are not assisted in other ways, or even that the death is dignified. And um, I show some, some examples of this. This is a report 
that Oregon publishes every year under their law, they're required to accumulate some basic demographic uh, information about patients who exercise this option under the law. And um, they've, they've recorded that it has taken patients as long as 104 hours, which is four days to die after taking the drugs. At least six patients have awoken after ingesting the drugs. And for 80% of patients, because they're unwitnessed, it's unknown if any complication occurs. This was an article that came out in USA Today four years ago when physicians started experimenting with other drug cocktails because uh, cecobarbital had become much less available. And they found that some of these combinations were extremely toxic and, and, and caustic, causing patients' throats to burn and even to scream in pain and to take uh, several days to die after ingestion. And that kind of uh, points out this, this latest development in assisted suicide, which is experimentation without any real oversight or controls. Um, th the medications, as I mentioned, that have typically been used as pentobarbital or cecobarbital, short-acting, uh, uh, powerful barbiturates. Um, the chloral hydrate was the caustic substance in the first um, uh, combinations, but that's been dropped. And the predominant prescriptions that are now used are something called DDMP and DDMA. DDMP is diazepam, uh, Valium, which is a sedative, digoxin, which is a cardiac drug, that's the other D, morphine, a pain reliever, and propranolol, another cardiac drug that causes bradycardia. And this is probably, digoxin is probably the toxic substance used in this combination because in high doses, it's well known to cause lethal cardiac arrhythmias. Um, in DDMA, amitriptyline is used instead of propranolol. So that's a combination of digoxin and amitriptyline, both of which are cardiac active toxins that cause lethal rapid ventricular arrhythmias. And that's probably the mechanism of death uh, with these drugs. And interestingly, they've been experimenting on these drugs with no apparent IRB oversight, no clinical trials, no data safety monitoring boards, nothing that we take for granted here at a place like Johns Hopkins would be uh, the kind of oversight we would have even for an extremely benign um, intervention requires a very high level of oversight for safety. None of this is taking place uh, with the kind of experimentation that is going on. And it's uh, obvious that there is no FDA approval of any drugs for this purpose. And this just shows graphically how the combination of drugs have changed radically over the past few years, again, suggesting experimentation without any real uh, science or controls. No audits or investigation. Oregon has no system for reporting assisted suicide abuse. If you go to their website, you know, find how do I report, you won't see anything. The Oregon Health Department admits that it has no authority or budget to investigate or audit deaths. Physicians, as I mentioned, have immunity in prescribing assisted suicide, meaning they're unaccountable even for gross negligence in diagnosis or provision. All records involved are immune from discovery, inadmissible in court, and records are destroyed every year. Interestingly, most states also require that death certificates be falsified to state that the patient died of natural causes. And if you think about, and I have thought a lot about why these provisions are in the law, it really has nothing to do with giving patients any rights. What these provisions are really there for is to guarantee that no death under these laws will ever be investigated or can be investigated. Point number four, assisted suicide being based on false ideas about prognosis. Uh, many of us know as physicians that we cannot accurately predict a six-month prognosis in individual patients. I can certainly think of many examples from my practice and my family even, uh, but this is borne out by data. Um, some very accurate data from the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization shows that 20% of patients referred to U.S. hospices live for greater than six months, despite the fact that a patient has to have a six-month prognosis to be admitted to hospice. And even 10% live for greater than a year. Number two is that uh, there's no requirement that patients need to exhaust or even try any standard medical care. So any patient with a chronic illness that's life-threatening that requires medication or intervention to maintain life, if they choose to stop that intervention, would qualify under this law, patients on dialysis, uh, insulin-dependent diabetics, patients who could live many years with their therapy um, would qualify if they chose to stop. A uh, third point is that organ data shows that some patients live for over three years after getting a suicide prescription, and there's no consequences or accountability for the physician who made the wrong prognosis. Point number five, assisted suicide is discriminatory. 
It creates a new class of human beings who are denied the protection of the law afforded to almost all others. Suicide is not illegal, but is discouraged in almost all societies in faith traditions. It's assisting a suicide that's illegal under the law because the law recognizes the value of human life, the potential for abuse, undue influence, and coercion. So almost every state has a specific law or legal tradition in their common law that makes assisting a suicide illegal. And what these laws effectively do is they deny suicide prevention to this new class of people. If a patient presents uh, to me as a physician or any physician or healthcare professional with a suicidal belief or tendency or desire, our standard medical care is suicide prevention. And every physician is taught that and knows that. So what this law essentially does is it carve out, carves out a specific provision for this specific class of people. And the implication for other patients with severe illnesses, disabilities, and advanced age, even if they don't want this, is it signals to them that your life is less valuable and less worthy of the protection of the law. And this is why almost all disability rights organizations oppose these laws, and in fact, are some of the strongest and most vocal advocates um, in opposing these laws in state capitals. The National Council of Disability has opposed this uh, assisted suicide since 1997. This is an independent federal agency, so it is de facto a government agency uh, that is uh, uh, writes and, and crafts disability policy and white papers. And this was a report that they issued in October 9th, 2019, uh, after assisted suicide had been legal in some states for over 20 years. They very carefully looked at the data, looked at the laws, and concluded uh, that assisted suicide is dangerous and should be opposed uh, from a disability rights standpoint. This is another troubling um, aspect of this um, practice, which was, uh, this is a report that came out in Canada that did a cost-benefit analysis of looking at medical assistance in dying or medical aid in dying when it was first proposed in Canada. Uh, and they estimated that they could reduce annual healthcare expenditures in Canada between 34 and $138 million, exceeding the, ver the relatively modest direct costs associated with implementation. So it's very obvious um, to somebody looking at uh, healthcare from a cost perspective that physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia could be enormously uh, cost-saving. But and that raises a lot of troubling ethical issues. First of all, is that these laws do not make it illegal for a family or physicians to suggest or even to recommend assisted suicide. And many have commented and been concerned that this choice, what is couched as a choice, what is advertised as a choice under economic and cultural influences and pressures could become an expectation. And this hasn't been lost even on the proponents of euthanasia. This is from Derek Humphrey, the founder of the modern euthanasia movement in a book he published in 2000. And quote, economics, not the quest for broadened individual liberties or increased autonomy, will drive assisted suicide to the plateau of acceptable practice. And this is something that he wrote and speculated about 20 years ago when only a single state had passed a law. Um, and I, I think um, it's uh, prescient, is what he said. This creates a lot of conflicts of interest, obviously, for insurance companies, hospitals, and even physicians who are under increasingly pressure, under increased pressure to control healthcare costs. How are these organizations going to manage this terrible conflict of interest when this is uh, legalized? Point six is that assisted suicide in many ways is unnecessary. Patients can already decline any and all medical treatment that we do, do not, that they do not want. And this is very well established in medical ethics and law in the United States for at least 30 years. We know that patients can produce advanced directives uh, indicating what kind of care they want to receive when they can no longer make their own wishes known. And we also know that palliative care, hospice care, and pain management fields have made enormous strides. Um, and this is some of the organizations that work in Maryland in this field. Physical suffering at the end of life can be managed with narcotics and palliative sedation. And importantly, most patients requesting assisted suicide in Oregon, Oregon less than 25%, report pain or even the fear of pain as the reason for making their request. Rather, the most common reasons for requesting assisted suicide are fear of loss of independence and dignity, enjoyment of life, and burdening others. Uh, they're really experiencing what is called existential suffering rather than physical pain. Finally, there's no requirement in these, in these bills or laws that the patient be experiencing any physical pain or suffering at all. And this just shows 
Um, couple points about this. This is a curve of the use of assisted suicide prescriptions in Oregon. Um, the top line is prescriptions written, and the bottom line in purple is Death with Dignity Act deaths, as the term is called in Oregon. And in when this uh, was first passed for the, for the first 10 years, um, deaths under this act only comprised about 0.1% of all deaths, one out of 1,000 which to me suggests how little needed it actually is in, in modern society with the medical care that we have, with hospice care, palliative care, and pain management programs. But what you see in the last 10 years is a really dramatic growth in utilization. And what that tells me is that the intrinsic demand, the intrinsic need for this is really very small. But with time and with promotion, with marketing, if you will, it can be uh, promoted to the point that it's used more and more. Point number seven, assisted suicide could affect attitudes towards other suicides. We know that suicide already is a huge problem in the United States, particularly if you include many of the deaths from, uh, from narcotics overdose and other drug overdoses. It's the 10th leading cause of death. So we should ask ourselves how government and how the medical profession can rationally endorse suicide for some people and oppose for others. Isn't all suicide a response in some way to intolerable suffering? Point number eight is that assisted suicide will certainly lead to other forms of euthanasia as it has in every other country. If one accepts the fallacy of a right to assisted suicide and that killing patients is compassionate medical care, it is inevitable that this will lead to expansion of this right to others, particularly to people without terminal illnesses or physical illnesses. And this is already happening in Belgium and the Netherlands, as I'll talk about. If one accepts that someone has a right to assisted suicide, then how can you deny this right to people who can't swallow 100 pills? Therefore, you're led to directly to euthanasia by lethal injection for those people to exercise their right. And this, in fact, has already been raised in the United States and California as an objection to the self-administration requirement. And this is being adjudicated by a court now. It can then lead to non-voluntary euthanasia, where patients give an advanced directive that they would want euthanasia if they reached a point where they could no longer um, care for themselves. And there are cases of this, as we'll talk about. Finally, that can lead to involuntary euthanasia. Once it becomes entrenched in a culture, in a medical practice, that this is humane medical care, it becomes applied to patients even without their, their explicit or implicit consent. This shows growth of euthanasia by injection in the Netherlands and uh, Belgium. This started as an assisted suicide law similar to the United States, but rapidly expanded to euthanasia. And now in the Netherlands, where the uptake is the highest, it is about 4% of all deaths. In the Netherlands, um, a psychiatric diagnosis alone can be grounds for euthanasia. You don't even have to have a physical illness or a terminal illness. And uh, this is a paper that was published in JAMA Psychiatry in 2016, documenting some of the reasons, anxiety disorder, PTSD, eating disorders, prolonged grief, autism, depression. There was a famous case of a, of a young woman, 29 years old, who had no other illness other than depression, who was euthanized in 2018 in a highly publicized case. Um, this was a case that illustrates the troubling practice of advanced directive euthanasia. This was a, a woman in uh, the Netherlands who gave an advanced directive. I don't remember if it was written or just verbal, uh, where she asked to be euthanized once her dementia reached a point uh, where she could no longer care for herself. And uh, when a doctor decided that today was the day, she he enlisted, I think it was uh, actually a female doctor, she enlisted uh, the family of the patient to hold down the patient, put an IV line in to euthanize her, even as she physically resisted because she did not understand what was happening to her. Uh, Canada enacted a uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia law uh, by a judicial ruling, and it was shortly thereafter enacted by their parliament and has since had uh, um, very, very rapid uh, growth and uptake in most provinces. Point number nine, the vast majority of doctors will not practice assisted suicide. In Oregon, almost all prescriptions are written by only two or 3% of the state's physicians. Another piece of data is that the average duration of the physician-patient relationship in Oregon under their act is three months. This is something that they record 
And what that three-month number tells you is that this isn't patients' longtime family physicians. It isn't patients oncologists or neurologists who will typically develop a, a relationship of several years with a patient before they reach a terminal state. It really suggests that there's a small cadre of physicians who are practicing this uh, somewhat independently. Uh, and patients are largely directed to this small group of willing physicians who may know little or nothing about them or their background. And several profiled in prominent media publications do nothing other than prescribe assisted suicide and euthanasia. This was a, a very prominent doctor and proponent of assisted suicide in California. I think he practiced as an emergency room physician and then retired. And when California was preparing to implement or, or pass their law, he, he started basically a practice and decided what his fees would be, set up this very nice website, and essentially set up a boutique practice in Berkeley, California, where he did nothing but this um, for several years, and I believe since he's closed this practice. This was another um, big uh, article that was published in the New York Times in 2017 after they started practicing euthanasia. Uh, this is a uh, picture. It is a uh, retired OBGYN um, who took this up as a as a as a practice and uh, had no uh, qualms about uh, engaging in it. Closer to home, the District of Columbia passed the, a similar assisted suicide law by their city council in uh, 2017. And I saw this article published a year later that uh, even after a year after implementation, out of 11,000 licensed physicians in District of Columbia, only two signed up to participate in and only one hospital cleared its staff to participate. What this really suggests is that physicians uh, regardless of what polls say, don't seem to support this in their actions. Final point is that physician-assisted suicide will affect everyone. We are often told that medicine is a public trust. The public holds uh, medical professionals collectively accountable for the integrity of healthcare systems, for the action of other health professionals. We know that we all work in teams, and it's important to have a common ethical framework to be able to trust one another. I'm very concerned that assisted suicide, if, if it expands, will corrode how all of us as healthcare professionals view patients with advanced illnesses and disabilities, and that the result is going to be a profession and a healthcare system that is less caring and less compassionate for everyone. So I've summarized some reasons why one might oppose assisted suicide. And I'll just close with a few organizations that are working in this field, uh, useful websites with information. This is an organization in Maryland. This is a national organization, the Patient Rights Action Fund, which um, uh, helps coordinate state action and also is a clearinghouse for a lot of useful information. I mentioned the National Council on Disability. This is a link to their white paper published in 2019. The Euthanasia Prevention Coalition is one of the leading organizations in Canada. And the Dignity Mandate is another very active local organization in Maryland. So with that, I will be very happy to open it up to questions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Maureen, for that wonderful presentation. Um, we have some time for questions. I see there's one in the chat box. I'm happy to read off unless the... Great. The person asking wants to unmute themselves um, and anybody, please feel free to unmute or enter something in the chat. I'm happy to read them off as well. Oh, I think oh. I'm, I'm not mute. I'm muted. So oh. the first question from Scott Hanel is, is Alzheimer's considered a terminal illness under the physician of suicide in the law? So this is a great question because it really raises the question, what is a terminal illness? And I'm not sure I know the answer. What it, the, to the definition under the law is that a physician's reasonable medical judgment and what that means is more likely than not, 50% plus one. If a physician feels that 50% plus one percentage chance that a patient will not live six years, that is terminally ill under this law. Uh, and you can see that that's a highly, highly subjective definition. Uh, I think as, as physicians, we've seen many prognoses uh, incorrect. And it's one of the most difficult aspects of, uh, of the law. So there really is no definition. It doesn't specify in the law what are qualifying diagnoses? Um, so if, if a physician wants to say that Alzheimer's is in a terminal state, then um, you know that's, that's really all that's necessary. You need one physician to make the initial certification and then a second physician to confirm. Certainly Alzheimer's disease is, is and Alzheimer's disease is also comes up under the issue of consent and, and advanced directives. 
So it's another troubling aspect that I mentioned that's, 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 that's legal in the Netherlands for somebody with Alzheimer's disease when they're in a competent state of mind to have an advanced directive to have themselves euthanized when they can no longer say yes or no. So repeating the first point is what is a terminal illness? This is not specifically defined in the law. It simply says a doctor's reasonable medical judgment that a patient is more likely than not will not live for six years, six months. So uh, Scott Hanel also asks, any idea whether states with PAS laws have a higher or lower over suicide, overall suicide rate? So that's a good question. Um, I know about Oregon has a relatively high suicide rate, and I showed a graph there. Maryland, interestingly, has one of the lowest suicide rates in the country. Uh, Oregon's suicide rate has increased, uh, I think, something like 40% since it passed its law on a per-person on a, uh, per basis per capita basis, and that is faster than the national average. So some have used this as evidence that promotion of assisted suicide and acceptance of assisted suicide may lead to higher overall suicide rates. Um, others dispute that, but I think that could be taken as evidence that the answer to that question is yes, that it could. Oh, the first reason to oppose. Um, so uh, does that answer your question, Scott? I think it's disputed, but there's some evidence from Oregon that higher that the higher suicide rates have resulted since their, their law was passed. Yeah, and that does answer my question. Thank you. I think regarding Joe's question, I think some folks were joining uh, while you were on kind of like point two and point three. So I think he was referring to the first. So the, point so the first point in the presentation was that uh, medical professional societies and organizations have always regarded assisted suicide as unethical uh, for 2,400 years, almost continuously and almost without exception. And I think that, you know, there's probably a reason for that. We should, we should think about the collective wisdom of millions of physicians practicing over 2,400 years before we want to throw away a principle like that without very, very good reasons. I think that's the point that I was making. And that, you know, not only is this an ancient uh, uh, tradition, and, and belief in medical practice, but it's been reaffirmed by major professional societies, the AMA and the American College of Physicians, the two largest physician organizations in the United States, uh, initially affirmed in the 1990s and reaffirmed just three and four years ago. I hope that answers your question, Joe. Welcome. Any other comments or uh, questions, points that anybody else would like to make? I've obviously um, express this from a certain viewpoint that I held deeply from my own work. And I, you know, recognize people have other, you know, uh, points of view and welcome to hear and discuss that. Hi, Joe. This hey, is Shirley. Shirley. How are you? Good, good. Um, and I may have, I was sort of in and out on your uh, presentation, though certainly I've tracked your presentations uh, before and I'm always, you know, uh, tracking on the updates as well. Did you mention that um, euthanasia is also, or, or physician-assisted suicide, is also rolling to some other countries that have traditionally not supported this and that uh, in Spain, and in Colombia, in fact, there was a big spread on the front page of the Washington Post in the last few days, highlighting a woman um, in Colombia who, by religious tradition, would ordinarily not uh, could entertain it, but has decided that you know it, it's being promoted and that she's considering it. So. It's it's going beyond some of the countries that we've thought about. Yes, yeah, certainly the the Netherlands and uh, Belgium were the pioneers um, in this area, but Canada has adopted it um, by judicial ruling. Interestingly, in 2013 in Canada, their parliament decisively voted down a euthanasia law. But in 2016, I think a case was appealed to their Supreme Court, and by a 9-0 ruling. Um, the court determined that under Canada's constitution, people had a right to assisted suicide. They then convened an ethics panel that determined that if they offered assisted suicide, they had to offer euthanasia both. And so uh, Canada's parliament, in response to the judicial ruling and this ethics panel, uh, passed a law in 2017. Um, so that was the next major country. Colombia, I'm not as familiar with. I, I do recall seeing that article, but I didn't have the time to read it in great depth. Uh, and uh, uh, Australia has been another active site. I believe one or two of their states, of their four or five states, um, have passed it, uh, 
um, laws in the last couple of years. So this is this is an active issue all over the world. England, it's been debated and so far uh, voted down, but um, it's something we have to keep an eye on in every country. Speaking of every country, you do have a question in the chat box. Uh, it looks like somebody's joining us from Portugal. Oh, great. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, Sophia. Um, yes. So you ask what? Uh, go, go ahead and please state your question. Thanks for oh, joining no, us. Um, no, thank you. Great talk. Uh, we are now fighting uh, in Portugal against a uh, euthanasia law that's being approved. So great points. Thank you so much. Um, I'm a medical professor. So what we need, can we do in terms of teaching uh, for the students? That was the question. Thank you. Well, I think take every opportunity that you can to talk about it. Uh, I think uh, courses on palliative care and hospice care um, are often part of medical school curriculum. That's an opportunity to get involved and speak about this. Um, I'm actually going to speak to the Johns Hopkins medical students um, uh, by invitation in a couple of weeks. And these are the kinds of points um, that I will make. I think it's very important that you know we approach this in the Thomistic uh, society from a certain philosophical and, and faith tradition and religious tradition. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that we have to frame our arguments to the public, to the medical professionals, and particularly to legislatures um, in other terms, um, because they, those will be most persuasive. I think that I'm certainly informed uh, by my understanding of uh, my faith, but um, I think that most of the arguments that I've made tonight are largely secular, professional, ethical, and professional arguments. And I think that uh, those are the kinds of arguments that will work with medical students and in medical settings. So I would, I would encourage everybody who cares about this issue um, to, to have their own talking points that they can talk about with students in whatever form it comes up, whether it's on teaching rounds or formal didactic teaching. Thank you so much. I'd be interested in hearing what is there is there a bill in the in the parliaments in the, in your parliament now or is it something um, that's just being talked about? Yes, um, it it was approved in the parliament and then it went to our prime minister, uh, our president, who sent it to to the court, to the sort of Supreme Court, and it was rejected, but not for the fundamental right to life. It was because it was not very precise in terms of the conditions that would be. Um, liable to to be um, part of the law. So now it's back to the parliament and they're changing and making some sort of more specific uh, conditions. And uh, now I think it will be approved again and sent to the court. I think the, the, the judges who are uh, who have changed uh, will approve that law. So mm -hmm. it's a question mm -hmm. of months for the situation in Portugal to actually change. Yes, no, I'm sorry to hear that. And and you know the track record in country after country is it's passed under very limited specific conditions. And then in a matter of a few years, all of those conditions get torn down because they make no sense. There's just Absolutely. no rational dividing lines. Absolutely. Um, so it, it's getting it in the door. Once you get it in the door, then the slippery slope starts, unfortunately. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so Scott asks, um, I'm interested in hearing your opinion on what you think the inevitable outcome of the movement to stop slow PAS is. Can it be stopped? I think, um, you know, it's not in certainly not in my hands. Um, I think all we can do is say what we believe and do what we can. Um, I kind of have not taken to predicting. I, I, I'm actually would have thought that it might have passed in Maryland by now, and I'm pleasantly surprised that we're our, our arguments are gaining some traction in critical legislatures who start to see the danger of this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that with pointing out what's happening, uh, going down the slippery slope in other countries will be persuasive to some that there's just no way that they can approve it and think that it will be uh, narrowly used and rare, that it will inevitably, if, they're, if, you're, if you're going to go down this pathway, you have to be willing to see it expand rapidly um, to other conditions and other means. So I, I hope that that's persuading some people. I think another hopeful sign is a lot of people predicted um, that with the Brittany Menard case in California and California adopting it, that that was going to lead to an avalanche of essentially all the dominoes falling and that didn't really happen. Um, there still is a lot of vigorous resistance in many states. So I, I think you know it's easy to be pessimistic, but I, you have to be an optimistic and just keep telling the truth as you see it. And that's all. That's the way I approach it. Sarah asked, do you see a relationship between the trends of abortion laws and assisted suicide laws in various states? 
You, for example, you mentioned that Nordic countries have been the leaders in assisted suicide laws, and they also have some of the highest rates of abortions related disability diagnoses, et cetera. I think you could certainly see parallels, um, particularly in terms of slippery slope um, arguments. Um, I wasn't around during Roe v. Wade, but what I've been told is it was the same kind of arguments that abortion was necessary in certain um, extraordinary medical conditions and risk to the life of the mother. And then we've seen how that has expanded um, and, and utilization has expanded so much more broadly. And there certainly is a parallel there, um, but I, I, I haven't really looked at that question um, extensively enough to give you a good answer. Certainly, you know, bound in common philosophical framework about right to life and belief in the sanctity of life uh, from from uh, conception until natural death. And so that's certainly uh, tied there from our philosophical and spiritual framework. Uh, but from a legal standpoint, it certainly makes sense that they would be tied. But I, I just don't know um, specifically your, the answer. If anybody else would like to comment. Um, who might uh, have followed this more than I have. Joe, I can't say that I've followed it more than you have, but, <laughs> but I've kind of tracked on some of these things too. And I think you may recall there was a documentary done a few years ago called Fatal Flaws, I think. Yes. That actually uh, tracked this movement in, um, in, in Europe, specifically the Netherlands, Belgium, et cetera, it was very well done because they interviewed people who have been in on this from the beginning. Many of them had also supported PAS, but they've acknowledged that it has gone where no one thought that it would. And, you know, there are concerns about some of the mental health issues and younger people who are using that as their reason to pursue it. And they actually followed a young woman who had identified she wanted to do this before she was old enough to do it. And mm. when she became old enough, uh, she still she still pursued it. And I think that's something that we all have to think about is that this is not necessarily a consideration just by people who have a lot of physical infirmities and are much advanced in age. We are actually talking about something that as soon as you are uh, legally able to make your own decision, you would have that opportunity. And mm -hmm. 18, we go from 18 years old right. in, the, in the U.S. We, we go from throwing all the resources at helping our young who have uh, mental health issues or fighting anxieties and depression along with chronic disorders. And then but once they hit 18. And Canada makes the case, actually, that there can be exceptions for a more mature minor making certain of these kinds of decisions. There is every there's there's no reason to think that there would not be some increase uh, either in suicide or particularly use of this method. And this method is not counted in suicide figures because it's hidden. Right. That's absolutely critical that people understand that. <laughs> it, it is hidden. Uh, death is attributed to the condition that justified PAS, uh, the prescription. Mm -hmm. So so those are those are things that uh, you know really catch my attention personally. And if people track on what the early proponents said would not happen, like they would not be narrowing the waiting time from uh, first consideration or, or first request for PAS to actual um, writing of the prescription or uh, the decreasing utilization of psychiatric evaluation. Exactly yep. what was said would not happen has actually happened. And you can clearly track this in Oregon the leading state. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I think this just goes back to once you accept a fallacy, you have to accept all the logical conclusions that flow from that fallacy. So if assisted suicide is compassionate medical care, how can you deny it to teenagers? How can you deny it to children? How can you deny it to somebody who can't swallow pills? How can you deny it to somebody who can no longer give informed consent or informed refusal? It leads you there quite logically once you have the have that door opened. And, and they, I believe that teenagers are allowed to use it in the Netherlands and Belgium, and they're working on going back to childhood. Hi, Brent. 
I'm going to send you a question on, on futility. So not that I endorse a physician assisted suicide for futility, but I think that the futility discussions are going to be appearing largely because of changes in our healthcare delivery system and uh, different values that seem to be appearing. What are your thoughts on on how do we discuss those supporting physician-assisted suicide or saying, well, things are futile? Well, I guess there I would turn back to the point that nobody has to accept getting any care that they don't wish to get if they if they feel that um, you know pursuit of you know whether it's chemotherapy or treatment for an allergic disease or whatever condition they have, they they don't have to accept that, and you know once patients reach that stage of their illness, there are other positive therapies that can be offered, palliative care, hospice care, pain management programs. So I think you always have to turn this into a positive, what we can do for you rather than what we can't do for you. I think that's how I would frame it. And still for these these laws uh, or these um, bills that have come up are generally re- uh, regarding patients that still have capacity, right? These aren't bills that have... Uh, appeared with a proxy um, no. demanding. That's that's specifically excluded because of the concern of lack of consent. Um, so patients have to su- be able to sign a form. They have to be certified by a physician as not suffering from any mental impairment that would prevent them from being able to make a free and uncoerced decision. Now, of course, because the actual practice, the actual consumption of the drugs is not witnessed and may occur weeks or even months later, um, we can't know if uh, what condition a patient was in when they actually consumed them, if they act, were actually self-administered. We simply have no idea. It's a black box into which we cannot um, peer. However, there is good data from uh, the Netherlands and Belgium that once you accept this practice, it kind of infects the minds of physicians that this is compassionate medical care, and it leads to essentially mercy killings. Um, anonymous surveys, I think in Belgium, the New England Journal published an anonymous survey that suggested that there's at least a thousand occurring in Belgium every year. Um, it's just quietly done uh, without consent and without people's knowledge. That's helpful. It's helpful to understand that because um, the capacity of the patient may actually change and because there's no necessity to assess capacity in the future, as you um, gave an example, it's a good reason to say, hey, we don't know, this law doesn't protect those that actually lack capacity. And we don't know if some proxy or non-proxy is actually administering some um, concoction. Uh, yep. I won't call it medicine, uh, but it, uh, it's a good argument actually to point out that there's flaws in this. Yeah, but Once I, you... may I go ahead, just- Go ahead, uh, Sophia, yes. Uh, that argument will lead you to euthanasia. They will propose that you have a doctor that will actually um, make sure that everything is correct and uh, everything is attended and you give the patient the correct dosage. So that in, in Portugal, we started with the euthanasia law exactly because of that. You want to make sure that everything is done correctly. And how do you answer to that? I think I think Joe was pointing out, um, Sophia, is that right, Sophia? Yeah. Uh, Sophia, I think Joe was pointing out that Perhaps in Portugal, um, the beliefs, the values, the norms, um, the society changed and that then uh, gave an argument for euthanasia, right? Is that what you're suggesting, Sophia? No, because if you uh, if the problem is that patients take drugs alone and no one is supervising and you have no direct uh, medical attendance of that procedure being done, um, then euthanasia will solve all of that because you will have a a, a doctor making sure that everything goes smoothly. It's interesting that- argument. Yes. Well, it's interesting that in in countries that have both assisted suicide and euthanasia by injection, virtually 100% of deaths move almost immediately to euthanasia by lethal injection. I think that's what patients want. Um, they want it in a controlled way where they they know um, that that a doctor is going to complete it. 
um, without any concerns about vomiting pills and uh, so forth. So I think that's that's the way it turns quickly. It's also interestingly that um, in 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 I believe the Netherlands, it, it, every every um, act is supervised and reviewed by a board, at least nominally. Where they don't even have that in the United States. There's no oversight. Uh, at all. Once once a patient signs that form, they've effectively waived all their rights um, under the law to ever have their death investigated. Yeah. And here in Portugal, uh, they didn't even want to um, have a referendum. The parliament uh, uh, didn't approve a referendum because they, they, they knew they would lose. So it's not the people really? that have changed. It's actually um, a majority in the parliament uh, that Uh, they used to approve the law. That is fascinating because uh, in, in the United States, we have the opposite problem that public opinion polls, usually a uh, very, very uh, poorly informed public asked a very leading question um, or, or often induced to, to, to find support of 60, 65% or so um, for passaging these laws. Um, so we, we battle the opposite problem. Here so it was Sophia, the, Oh, sorry. Oh, Sophia, you're saying that really a minority or the the ruling entity, because I don't understand the governmental structure necessarily in Portugal other than it's EU, but uh, some non-majority actually enforced a uh, a law that mandates death uh, in such a way. Yeah, they 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 mean. Um... We have a parliament and now no party has a majority. So uh, all the parties get together and because they would have um, um, some um, deputy uh, represents uh, that would make a majority, they approved the law. And then it was uh, sent to the to the, our sort of Supreme Court and it was passed back to the parliament. But uh, they wouldn't hold a referendum because the pools would actually um, tell that they would lose. So they just use that. So I'm just uh, making sure I keep track of questions here. It looks like Scott has asked a question about compassionate extubation. So this, is, uh, this, this concerns the issue of withdrawal of care um, in patients that are in advanced or terminal condition in intensive care units um, upon uh, patients or, or, or proxy requests. I think that... I think that this is really, you know, it, this is a difficult issue, but um, one that the law has uh, come around to deciding that patients have the right to um, stop care that they do not want to have. Um, so I think that this is a practice in the United States to turn off ventilators. Um, Brent, would you have any comments on this or other physicians? I, I, I practice more of an outpatient care, so I've been many years since I've been in ICUs or practicing ICU care. So I'd welcome the comments of others. But I think this gets to the point of what is generally accepted that patients uh, have the right to refuse care that they don't want. And that would be an example. Uh, so I guess the, the question really, and I asked this earlier, how do we discuss futility? Because if we're extubating the concern, and I'm not ICU either, um, and I'm mostly outpatient, but I do still do, still do some inpatient. Uh, the question really is, what is futility and how are these bills of physician-assisted suicide different than um, the practice of care around the time of futility? Because I think we're going to wind up addressing futility, at least in Maryland. States like Texas, where I practiced 20 years ago, have futility laws. But it doesn't seem that futility even gets discussed in Maryland. And uh, I suspect we're headed for futility discussions. And I believe that discussing how care is different when you're demanding that someone or you're demanding that a physician writes a prescription that you take because you have the intent to end your life abruptly. Because the proponents of physician-assisted suicide have said themselves that They've got this sigobarbital and it, it kills you quickly, but they want to change the death certificate uh, and write that the disease killed you. But they just told us that the sigobarbital ends your life quickly, right? So 
we can argue for against them in, in that they've already told us cecobarbital kills a patient. So it's a fallacy to write on a death certificate that a chronic disease, which hasn't killed them yet, has caused death, okay? So that's how it's different than some feudal situation because there are going to be cases of futility, right? That medically, we can't do anything else right now, right? It's This is futile. And each case will have to be discussed with care, right? These are all not, when these discussions get going, somebody wants to drop a blank statement, but there's gonna be discussion around each one of these cases. But what's different is in the physician-assisted suicide designed to end your life abruptly with taking medicines for which the disease hasn't killed you, you want to write down that a disease killed you. It's very different from um, end of life, uh, utility and, and uh, extubation, right? Okay, well, I think you make a good point. Maybe you might come on and making that moral distinction between uh, withdrawing care and uh, taking a positive, uh, affirmative act of ending life. Oh, I uh, so I responded to Scott in the comments that uh, I think there's a, a an important moral distinction between uh, extubation uh, or or a patient choosing um, not to continue uh, care um, because. Uh, if, if the end result is death in either case, um, in, in one case, the disease running its course is what causes the death. In the other case, a physician administering a lethal drug uh, causing a death. So it just to, to me, that's kind of what helps me kind of distinguish the two is, is like, what is the cause of death at the end of the day, even though death would occur in either case? Right. I, I didn't actually wrap that piece up at the end, but you did it for me. I was trying to just describe how the pills by taking them causes death. And as you illustrated, which I didn't do as well, is that the disease, the natural cause ends life, right? We can withdraw our extraordinary means such as uh, ventilatory uh, support, right? That's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for one more question before we need to let Dr. Marine go. So, uh, sure. So, uh, Andrew wanted to clarify the uh, statistical point about hospice patients. So, uh, what the hospice organization has reported is that 20% 20 out of patients who are preferred to hospice live longer than six months. So, 80% die within six months of enrollment, 20% survive, and 10% survive more than a year. And that's that's probably a minimal number because of the way they collect the statistics, the number, the true number may actually be higher. And there are other statistics reported in patients given a terminal prognosis of less than six months um, that as many as 50% survive that prognosis. And I think any physician can tell you specific examples they've seen of individual patients far outliving a an average or a median uh, survival. 